This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello, and welcome to Potent Potables. I'm Emily, and uh, this week, Kyle is away, but very lucky us. We have a guest co-host with us today. Uh, Stephen Grade is joining us. Uh, you probably remember Stephen. He was a five-day Jeopardy! champion and a Tournament of Champions semifinalist. Uh, he was with us on our Tournament of Champions interview episode, and he's here today to talk Jeopardy! with me. So welcome, Stephen. Hello. Thank you, Emily. Hello, everybody. Thanks for uh, having me back and letting me uh, fill in Kyle's shoes. I uh, promise not to bring too much shame onto the podcast. Never, never. <laughs> but uh, I'm, I'm happy to be back. I'm looking forward to getting to, uh, to talk some Jeopardy with you. I've been looking forward to this all week. So uh, the, the hosting situation has changed a bit. But as usual, we're going to start by talking about this week's Jeopardy! episodes. Then we will move to a deep dive on a question or category. And then Stephen, has, who has written our deep dive, is, uh, is going to be doing the quiz. So I don't know if I should be excited or terrified or a little bit of both. Well, let's stick with a little bit of both and we'll see how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> sort of like being on Jeopardy! itself. Exactly. Um, it's going to yeah. be fun. It might be a little bit terrifying, but we're going to try and have a good time. Yeah, yeah I think it'll be great. All right. So Monday, January 20th, we had Tracy Mack, a media executive from Campbell, California, Matthew Neff, a CFO from Chicago, Illinois, and Dennis Coffey, a bartender from Old Orchard Beach, Maine, with one-day cash winnings totaling $21,601. And we got the single Jeopardy categories, Literature, the subtitle, Holidays Around the World, Emmy winners for Best Actress in a Drama, Niagara Falls, Slowly I Turned, and Step by Step with Step in quotation marks. Well, one thing that uh, jumped out to me uh, when I was watching this was, and I I think that uh, Alex and Dennis both picked up on it, was the uh, Niagara Falls, Slowly I Turned, Step by Step categories. Uh, That's from a a Three Stooges routine that, uh, like most Three Stooges routine, ends up with Larry and Moe beating up on Curly. So mm-hmm. I think I'm watching it. That's why Dennis kind of gave that like Niagara Falls when he uh, first picked oh, the category yeah. to open the game because uh-huh. uh, that's that's how the uh, the bit starts off. All right, nice work on sussing out where what that reference was. I I picked up that it was some kind of pop culture reference <laughs> that I was supposed to know, and when when Dennis had like a. Had a, had a connection with it. I was like, oh, maybe it's something before my time. Yeah, um, yeah. He he had that moment of recognition. Yeah. But yeah, fun routine. It's on YouTube. Um, I know the Three Stooges did it. I think that Abbott and Costello used to do it. It's like an old vaudeville routine that uh, the Three Stooges really popularized. I'll look it up. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, it's it's funny, and it's always fun to see the writers throwing in those little uh, those little in, in jokes or references in a few of the categories. I remember on one of my games there were uh, three in a row that were Tenth uh, Doctor and Alan Z. Uh, even though they had nothing to do with Doctor Who, it still, you know, gave me a chuckle behind the podium and kind of helped keep mm-hmm. things light as I was back there, you know, freaking out. <laughs> yeah, Jeopardy humor is a, is its own, like, great nerdy brand of humor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we get the first Daily Double at clue number 15. We find it um, at the $600 row in Literature, the subtitle. Matthew uncovers it and wagers 1200 That was a true Daily Double. And he gets the clue, or the Parish Boy's Progress, which included picking a pocket or two. Um, and he correctly responds, what is Oliver Twist? Which always reminds me of 
the musical Oliver. Um, or, you know, that's how, that's how I sort of know Oliver Twist best. Yeah, I've never read it. I have seen the musical. It's been a long time. Mm-hmm. But uh, I did remember that that was the subtitle. And even if not, you know, the picking a pocket is there in case you remember that, you know, Fagin and the Artful Dodger and kind of point you in the right direction, even if you don't know the actual subtitle itself. Mm -hmm. That's right. Um, You know, I mean, after the Jeopardy round, Matthew was out to a he got off to a pretty good start. He was at mm 5000 with uh, Tracy and Dennis tied at 3000. So he was able to kind of keep the momentum going when he found the Daily Double right before the first commercial break. Keep maintain his lead over Tracy and extend it. Uh, so he was uh, had a solid two thousand dollar lead uh, going into the double jeopardy round. Yeah. So after the break, they came back uh, for the double jeopardy round uh, with the categories of French arts and culture, hidden treasure, uh, which was a visual wordplay clue category where Alex told the contestants that each response will contain a gem or a precious metal found within the text of the clue itself. Uh, so you needed to read those off the screen and look for the uh, the hidden gem inside of the uh, the clue. Uh, libraries, Second City alumni, referring to the Second City Improv Comedy Troupe based in Chicago, which, based on Alex's reaction, he's apparently a fan of. Uh, the Americas Before Columbus and Come to Your Census, C E N S U S. I tanked at the Second City alumni category. I, I enjoy comedy, but apparently I don't know anybody's names. <laughs> yeah, I actually, uh, I got all five of them right on that category. Um, nice. Yeah, you know, some of some of them I've seen, some of them I haven't. I've ne- I haven't really watched a lot of Silicon Valley in the past few seasons, but I do remember uh, that Thomas Middleditch plays Richard. Uh, my wife has been, uh, Ben's watching Schitt's Creek lately, so I remembered that uh, Catherine O'Hara and Eugene Levy starred in that one together. I was kind of disappointed when uh, Alan Alda, uh, actor who directed 32 episodes of MASH, was a triple stumper. Uh, it seemed like Dennis and Tracy kind of went too deep on that one. Uh, Dennis went with Wayne Rogers, and Tracy went with Jamie Farr, who were both actors on MASH, but uh, Alan Alda is kind of by far the most notable one, and uh, yeah. at least I knew him for uh, taking over uh, some writing and directing duties uh, late in the show's run. Mm-hmm. Uh, also saw him pop up in a marriage story, which I watched the other day. So uh, he was fresh in my mind when this clue came up. But yeah, the one that uh, I'm usually terrible at the wordplay categories. Like those are, I just basically sit on my hands and try to, you know, stay stay quiet and not lose too many points on those. But I actually did pretty mm-hmm. well on the hidden treasure one. I didn't quite have an idea of what it was looking for on the $400 clue, but uh, I was able to figure out the rest of them Um just playing along, which going four for five in a wordplay category is a pretty pretty rare occurrence for me. So I was proud of my performance in that one. Yeah, nice work. Yeah, I did I did pretty well in that one too. I uh, I missed the twelve hundred, which was when I tripped and fell into the upper Tiber. There was a big splat in Umbria, um, so you had to notice splat in Umbria contains the the word platinum. That's a sort of one example if you if you missed that game, listeners. Yeah, another, another example for that one, uh, the $800 clue was, I hope our clue doesn't rub you the wrong way. So as you look at it, you can see that rub is followed by the Y in you, which is Ruby, which was the answer for that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that was that was fun. I feel like we don't see um, that kind of wordplay category so mm-hmm. often. Um yeah, it was a, it was it was fun. It, stre- it was a little bit of a stretch for me, um, but I, I got a good number of them. Yeah, I felt like we had some Jeopardy so woke content in uh, "Come to Your Census." That California has more people than the least 
the, than the 21 least populous states combined. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, they, they don't editorialize, but all, the question of citizen, citizenship appearing on the census was another another one where I thought Jeopardy writers are, you know, sort of doing, trying to do some um, political civic yeah, education they're, yeah they're, they're putting it out there like they're trying yeah. to get people aware of current events maybe if you know mm-hmm. you turn on jeopardy and then you turn it off as soon as the news starts they'll sometimes try to throw some current events in there to kind of let you know what's yeah. going on and let you know what some of the major issues of the day are and uh, mm-hmm. as, as you said they generally t- try to avoid editorializing uh sometimes they accidentally editorialize uh sometimes they editorialize without realizing they editorialize but mm-hmm. they'll they'll at least put the information out there and kind of let you decide what you want to do with it yeah sometimes it seems like they're editorializing but actually they taped months before the events that they seem to be commenting on yes and we're going to get into one of those later on <laughs> in this week <laughs> one that really, really uh, i'm trying to remember what it is but I'll, I'll remember when we get there or you'll remind me <laughs> yeah uh we get daily double number two at the 1600 dollars level in the americas before columbus dennis finds it and wagers 3500 He's in third at that point, so he's mm-hmm. he's trailing. Um, yeah, and pretty finds far it behind in, Tracy. Tracy was yeah. at fifteen thousand, and he was only at sixty two hundred. So he need he needed a big mm-hmm. bet and a get on this one. Yeah, so a relatively conservative bet given the situation. Thirty five hundred. Um, he gets the clue in fifteen hundred BC. People in Central America were processing rubber in a way similar to this process discovered by Goodyear. And he correctly responds, what is vulcanization? Yeah, I agree with you, Emily, that that was maybe not the ideal wager in that situation, given that uh, it was Mm -hmm. already clue 22, even though there was still one daily double left on the board. He was 9,000 behind Tracy, and Tracy being at 15,000 without the aid of a daily double up to that point was clearly showing, you know, some some great knowledge and some serious speed on the buzzer. So She was really strong. yeah, Yeah, she was she was playing very, very well at this point. So that Mm -hmm. might have been a good place. Let's see. Even though it was under $1,600 clue in that situation, you maybe need to start thinking about playing the board uh, instead of Mm -hmm. the category and try to try to gain some ground. Mm -hmm. But uh, he got it right. He made it work for him. I also got that one playing along from home. Uh, The reason that stuck out with me is I remembered that uh, my Tournament of Champions buddy, Eric R. Backus, his last final Jeopardy in his initial run was about a good year. So it didn't involve vulcanization, but um, by the time Eric was on, I already knew that I was going to be on the show, even though I hadn't taped yet. So I was already uh, watching the games intently, and I think I've got those whole few weeks still burned into my memory. So if you're listening, hi, Eric. Sorry you missed that uh, Goodyear vulcanization question. It helped us, though. Um, <laughs> I, think I, got, I got it, and I think maybe for the, for the same reason, from, from having that clue somewhere in the back of my mind. Daily Double Three uh, came up a few clues later. It was found on uh, clue number 25. It was in the $800 clue under libraries. Tracy found this one. She had regained control of the board. At the time, she had a score of 16,200, and she was uh, still a good bit ahead of Dennis with 9,700. Right before this clue, Alex told her that there was less than a minute remaining, so this was a good chance for Tracy to wager. She didn't need to wager huge, but with pretty much only low-value clues left on the board and so little time remaining, she could have taken the opportunity to bet a few thousand and turn this into a runaway going into Final Jeopardy. However, she decided to make a more modest bet. She only wagered $1,000, and the clue was, for her work with libraries and literacy, 
A promenade outside a library at SMU is named in honor of this first lady. Uh, Tracy answered Laura Bush, which was the correct answer. Know that SMU is in Texas, and remember that Laura Bush is a famously Texan first lady. Uh, That's one way into the clue. She was also Mm -hmm. a librarian, and her major initiatives while she was the first lady involved literacy. Uh, So that's another way to uh, get yourself uh, into that right answer, even if you don't know that the promenade outside of SMU is named for Laura Bush. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was good to good to see her get it. I um, I'm sure that she's kicking herself, and I don't want to, you know, I don't, I, I don't want to pour salt in a wound. She was so close to taking it to a lockout game, mm-hmm. maybe didn't realize. You know, I think it it can be daunting to do the math up there. Yeah, and to make a large enough wager, even if you know it's the right thing to do. Yeah, especially with the Daily Doubles, because as you know, and as anybody listening who has been on the show, when it comes to the Daily Doubles, you get the time that you see on TV. Uh, It's not Mm -hmm. like Final Jeopardy, where they'll give you some extra time longer than the length of a commercial to do the math and figure it out. You know, you've got to analyze the board, analyze the scores, analyze your comfort with the category, and then spit out a number that, you know, hopefully works out for you. You know, it takes being able to read the board and come up with all of that that quickly is a skill. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's certainly much easier for me to do from the comfort of my couch or when I'm just perusing on J Archive after the fact than it is to do it up there. But, you know, she she was correct. She still maintained the lead going into Final Jeopardy, which is, you know, honestly the most important thing that you can do in that situation. That is, yeah. yes, for sure. So we go into Final Jeopardy with Dennis at 10,100, Matthew at 7,800, and Tracy at 17,600. And we get the category Cabinet Positions. And the clue, of the four jobs in George Washington's cabinet, the two that have been filled by women in the 230 years since. So this is a clue where you've got to have, you've got to sort of pull different pieces of knowledge together. First of all, you have to know what four jobs were in the cabinet or, you know, sort of correctly identify a couple of them. Did you have Hamilton playing in your head at any point during thinking about this clue? I did. Uh, I was yeah. I was replaying the cabinet battles in my mind. I was like, okay, I know that Jefferson's Secretary of State. I know that Hamilton was Secretary of the Treasury. I know there was a Secretary of War at the time. And then the fourth mm-hmm. one didn't come to me. Uh, run, running through Hamilton, my mind did not help me in that regard. Uh, mm-hmm. So I, I ended up going with uh, the two that I mentioned. I knew that we had had some uh, female Secretaries of State in the years since. And Secretary of the Treasury seemed like a good guess. Uh, I knew that it was a cabinet position, so I figured that it was at least a decent shot. Uh, so I uh, I went with those two, uh, State and Treasury. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I did get this one correct. Um, I thought about State and Treasury immediately. Um, Hillary Clinton as one female Secretary of State that we've had. There have been others as well, right? Condoleezza Rice mm-hmm. and... Madeline Albright. Madeline Albright, that's right. So immediately female secretaries of state came to mind. I knew that was one. I didn't think it was secretary of the treasury. For some reason, I just sort of had a recollection that we haven't had a woman in that position yet. Um, And I started thinking about other sort of prominent women uh, in cabinet positions. And some of the ones that I thought of, I knew those were newer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then Janet Reno came to mind, um, and I and I got Attorney General from there. Mm-hmm. So this was a tough one for the contestants. Matthew missed it with Secretary of State and Treasury with a seventy six hundred dollar wager, so he drops to two hundred. Dennis had it correct 
with a 7501 wager. Uh, so that takes him $1 above where, uh, where Tracy was prior to Final Jeopardy to 17601. And Tracy missed it. She guessed what is Secretary of State and Speaker of the House. And she wagered 2601, looking to cover an all-in from Dennis. But since she missed, she dropped to 14,999. Dennis will be our champion going into Tuesday. Yep, a tr- tricky final Jeopardy. You know, Attorney General doesn't have the word secretary at the front of it, so that's kind of an attempt to trip you up right there. But also, that's yeah. just a lot of writing. Uh, to have to come yes. up with two separate things and then write down Secretary of State and Attorney General. I mean, I saw a little bit of controversy online if Dennis's abbreviation of Attorney G-E-N-L for General should have been acceptable. I don't have mm-hmm. a problem with that. I think that that's a perfectly reasonable way to abbreviate General, especially given that You've got to, like I said, come up with two two separate positions, probably be writing the first one while you're still thinking of the second one. That's that's a reasonable thing for him to write and a reasonable decision for the judges to make by giving it to him. Yeah, I agree. I think if it's clear what the person meant mm-hmm. and it's, you know, reasonably reasonably complete, mm-hmm. it should be accepted. I know those are those are not the uh not the clearest standards, but to me to me that was not a a tough call at yeah. all. Those light pens are not as easy to work as digital natives in 2020 would maybe expect. No, uh, when I when I came back, the thing that I compared it to was like writing with a magna doodle, uh, because mm-hmm. the 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 text that you write comes out thicker than you'd expect. So you have to write bigger than you usually would, uh, just to make sure that letters aren't running together. I mean. I had to rewrite, I think, three of my final Jeopardies at the last second just because it looked like, you know, a U, an A was a U, or I, I think that Maggie had me rewrite a zero wager at one point because it just didn't look like anything, because yeah. it, had, it had all run together into a, just a big blob. So yeah, those, thing, those things are tricky. You yeah. know, as, as long as you can get anything reasonably, you know, legible and close to an abbreviation in that situation... I'm I'm all for being lenient because I have terrible handwriting. Yeah, I'm with you. That brings us to Tuesday's game, uh, where today's contestants are Samantha Slama, a high school English teacher from Los Angeles, California, Steve Sheraldi, a data analyst from Arlington, Virginia, and our returning champ, Dennis Coffey, a bartender from Old Orchard Beach, Maine, whose two-day cash winnings total $39,202. The clues in the Jeopardy round are Check Out the Critter, Gravesite Offerings, Words from Mythology, Spaces, Sports Definitions, and I Missed the Start of That Nursery Rhyme, where the clue provides the second line of a, nur- of a nursery rhyme and the contestants supply the first line. I, uh, I enjoyed hearing the, uh, the calliope in the in clue number one. <laughs> Uh, it was stepped right up and identified this musical instrument that bears the name of a muse that was in um, words from mythology at the $600 level. Uh, and they and they played a little clip of it. I don't know much of anything about the calliope, except that that's what it's called. And that's what it sounds like. Yeah. But, and that's a jaunty yeah. way to start the game. It wouldn't have. Yeah. Been, it was a ton of fun to just hear that right off the bat. Uh, no, yeah. no build up, no lead in, no chance to get comfortable. It was like, nope, here's here's this. Uh, you know, joyous calliope circus style music playing and uh, right as we're kicking off Jeopardy. Yeah. All right. So we find Daily Double uh, at clue number 13. It's in the gravesite offerings category at the $600 level. Dennis finds it and 
wagers a thousand. Um, he had sixteen hundred at that point um, to Steve's twenty two hundred and Samantha's one thousand. He gets the clue. Visitors often leave pennies face up on the Baltimore grave of this assassin. And it looked to me like he just froze up on this one. He took quite a while and then he said, um, who is Lincoln? Uh, and then knew the name as soon as Alex started it. Um, the pennies have the image of Lincoln who was assassinated by John Wilkes Booth, um, who would have been, who was the correct response for that one. Yes. And, uh, and as somebody who recently missed a clue because he mixed up a presidential assassin with the president who he, he assassinated, uh, I can totally relate to freezing up like that. <laughs> I, I made the exact same mistake. I missed up uh, Oswald and Kennedy. Uh, so Dennis, I'm right there with you. You're in good company. Yeah, those, those kinds of things can happen. I somehow, oh, I guess part of this was before the, uh, before the Daily Double, but I somehow swept a sports category. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I, got, I knew all of the sports definitions. Um, a dig and spike are actions... April Ross executes in this sport, that's volleyball. In figure skating, a long backward glide on the outside edge of one foot leads into a Lutz. You face forward before leaping into the air to do one of these, that's an axle. And that was a Final Jeopardy clue. I mean, not the, not those exact words, but there was a there was a Final Jeopardy uh, on my tape day, actually. Um, oh, really? Wow. Yeah. Or actually, I was I was the one who got held over um, from Tuesday into Wednesday. Mm-hmm. So it was the Tuesday I didn't actually tape until Wednesday, but I was in the audience waiting to get called all day. And on Thursday, I think it was, um, it was Kyle versus Andrew Lundy and Riley Westmoreland. And they had a clue where they were supposed to, for Final Jeopardy, identify what sport a person named Axel was associated with. Yeah, trick, tricking it up a little on that one, as as befits a final Jeopardy clip. And I think, didn't Nutmeg come up in Learned League recently? It did. Uh, that was that yeah. was one that I was going to mention. Uh, the $1,000 clue, when a soccer player dribbles the ball between the legs of an opponent, it's called this spice. Uh, the answer is Nutmeg, and yes, that was a, uh, a question in Learned League. This past season, maybe? This past season or the season before, I think. I've only been in it for mm-hmm. a few seasons, and I think I remember getting that one. Yeah, so uh, those those were fun for me because I, I don't generally do too well in sports categories. So going into Double Jeopardy, uh, we have Dennis at 4,000, Steve at 2,400, and Samantha at 2,000. So she selects first in Double Jeopardy, where we get the categories, books and authors, a capital city idea, the USG, uh, that's the U.S. government, but it's going to be abbreviations. Spaced out pop culture. In Soviet Russia, words start with you. You in quotation marks. Um, so the writers are getting cute with us again. And uh, and so is Alex. Yeah, giving us a Yakov Smirnoff joke and uh, giving Alex a chance to break out his Russian accent. And Dennis a chance to break out his Ru- Russian accent when he opened that yes. category. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> And uh, several clues left unrevealed over the course of this game. There were two that we didn't get to in the Jeopardy round, and then four were not revealed um, in Double Jeopardy. Yes. Yeah. I thought I I was impressed with uh, Samantha for uh, recognizing the actress who was uh, Lieutenant Starbuck on Battlestar Galactica. And uh, is it Nico? Nico Breckenridge on Another Life. Uh, that's Katie Sackoff. 
I could probably have produced Starbuck, but not Katie's half off. So good for her. Yeah, yeah. That was one where, well, you know, I don't know if I got it in in time, but it was one where I was sitting there going like, oh, 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 I know that I know this. I know that I know this. And it, it would have, if I'd gotten in first, I would have been racing the, uh, the out of time buzzer there. But uh, the thing about that category that, uh, you know, as being a huge Star Wars fan that hurt that hurt me personally was uh, Dennis leaving out one of the Fars in uh, a galaxy far, far away. Uh, yeah. The $800 clue there was the start of the 1977 Star Wars movie informed us that it all happened a long time ago in this place. He buzzed in first with In a Galaxy Far Away, uh, and then Steve was able to jump in on the rebound with A Galaxy Far, Far Away. Yeah. That's just me being a little Star Wars nerd who wants, like, oh, no, no. <laughs> yeah. So Daily Double number two was found by Dennis uh, on the 10th clue of the round. It was under the $2,000 clue of a capital city idea. At the time, Dennis was in third place. Well, tied for second place, I get he and Samantha both had 4400 and Steve was in the lead with 6800 Dennis bet 2500 which would be enough to put him into the lead with a correct answer. Uh, the clue read, Playwright August Strindberg's home, with rooms that he furnished like stage sets, is now in his museum in this capital. Dennis gave the correct answer of what is Stockholm, which was good enough to move him into the lead with a score of 6900 mm-hmm. And uh, that's, uh, I, I personally like that clue a lot. That's combining two things that are uh, kind of Jeopardy studying 101. A uh, Swedish playwright is a Pavlov for August Strindberg, and one of the first things that you need to know before going on Jeopardy is your world, world capitals. So if you can take Swedish playwright and then go from Sweden to Stockholm, uh, you'll be able to, uh, to nail that clue. So I always like it when those, those things come up in that kind of context, where it's the writers almost saying like, okay, we know that these are things that you should know, but let's give them to you in a way that's a little bit different other than just asking what's the capital of Sweden. Yeah, I had, I had a similar similar response and it's sort of gratifying when you do successfully piece it together with all of your you know your studying that you've done oh yeah it's still it's still a thrill even even after all this time being like hey like i know i I, I knew that because i studied like it feels good it's not worth any money anymore but (laughs) still feels nice yeah yep so we get daily double three in the usg category at the 1600 dollar level dennis finds it and again wagers 2500 this time he's at 9700 to steve's 8000 and samantha's 7200 so a correct response will increase his lead uh so an incorrect response will drop him into tied for second he gets the clue the usccr isn't a classic rock band but the united states commission on these important crs not a classic rock band. They're they are nodding to the existence of Creedence Clearwater Revival, right? Yes. <laughs> not that it's not that it's actually relevant for the clue. <laughs> no, just trying to throw you off. <laughs> yep. Yes. <laughs> sometimes there are clues hidden in the in the clues, and sometimes there are red herrings hidden in the clues. Um, and in this case, it's a red herring. So I think uh, Dennis got a little stuck. Um, couldn't think of anything. Started to say census something. Yeah, census but records ran out, maybe. Ran, yeah, ran out of time. And in any case, um, uh, he was heading down the wrong road. This is uh, the correct response is civil rights. I was I was walking down the same road as Dennis, I, I guess, civil or civic records. So, mm. you know, it, at least it fits like I can I can hold my head in slightly less shame because at least it's a CR. 
But uh, it's funny. I didn't even realize right up until you mentioned it that the the reason it, the category was the USG was because they were all abbreviations. Uh, so mm-hmm. if only I'd been able to figure that out earlier, maybe it would have helped. Yeah, maybe. They have a bunch of conventions like that where they don't necessarily highlight it to you, but if you're but if you're sort of keyed into it. So that drops Dennis down into a tie with Samantha. Yeah, Steve pulled Steve pulled away a little bit on the last uh, seven clues. He ended up at uh, ten thousand going into Final Jeopardy. Uh, Dennis uh, stayed where he was after missing Daily Double number three at seventy two hundred, and Samantha had a couple of misses to put her in third with six thousand. Mm-hmm. The category for this Final Jeopardy was classic movies, which uh, got an uh, excited Alex fist bump fist pump of approval. Uh, he was very happy to see that category as he always is, and mm-hmm. the clue was. This 1939 film was loosely based on Senator Burton Wheeler, victim of a sham investigation for looking into the Justice Department. For the wagers, uh, Steve made the standard cover bet of 4401 Dennis made a bet of $4,801, uh, which would shut out Samantha in the event that they both gave a correct answer. Um, however, it did risk him falling behind Samantha on a triple stumper, uh, so he was betting on himself there. Uh, that he would get it right, that him getting it right was more likely than a triple stumper. And uh, Samantha bet 5,400, probably too high of a bet, uh, that classic mm-hmm. overbet from second or third position, because it, about barring uh, a wagering error from either Steve or Dennis, that eliminated Samantha's chances of winning on a triple stumper. Right. Yeah, from that position, you want to sort of hold where you are and hope that they're going to drop down below you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The uh, The correct answer to that clue was Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Uh, as it turns out, the worries about a triple stumper were moot because uh, Samantha and Dennis both gave the correct answer. Steve guessed Gone with the Wind, which uh, didn't seem to impress Alex, uh, but in Steve's defense, that was also a 1939 film that kind of deals with politics in some ways. Uh, I guess the Civil War was a very political conflict. So because of that, uh, Dennis um, took the win with a score of $12,001, making him a three-day champion with total winnings of $51,203. Yep. Some lucky breaks for Dennis, but he's also, you know, he's, play- he's playing good, solid games with yep. Jeopardy and staying within reach and making smart bets. Oh, yeah. Got to put yourself in position to win. But uh, this uh, this was the uh, clue I was referring to as being kind of one of those accidental uh, topical Jeopardy categories. Question. Oh, yeah. Seeing as uh, they asked a question about the Senate on the day that the uh, Senate impeachment trial started. So, right. again, like Jeopardy not trying to be political, but politics somehow managing to find Jeopardy, like with that uh, Iran clue a couple of weeks ago. Right, exactly. This film is great, by the way. Have you seen I did. Mr. Smith Goes uh, to Washington? Yeah, yeah, this actually inspired me. I hadn't, I'd, the first time I saw it, I think, was in a middle school civics class, and then I'd seen mm-hmm. it a couple times since, but this clue actually inspired me to, uh, to boot it up and watch it again uh, just the other day. And uh, it's, it's oh, a nice. fantastic film. It's so good. Yeah, it's been it's been a while since I saw it. Um, I, I've mentioned a couple of times on the podcast my my teenage quest to watch all of the AFI 100 films that they the list that they put out um, back in the 90s. I still have not finished that list, but this is one of the ones that I did watch. That is certainly a worthwhile quest. You have my full oh, support. Oh yeah, in that. yeah the the ones that the ones that remain are the ones that are like a little bit harder to uh, get your hands on. Although digital rentals is making that a lot easier. Anyway, so that takes us into Wednesday. We have Lau Mehe, a youth substance use prevention worker from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. 
John Cuevas, a slot floor person from San Marcos, California, and Dennis Coffey, a bartender from Old Orchard Beach, Maine, with three-day cash winnings totaling $51,203. And in the Jeopardy round, we get the categories Airport Attractions, Runner-Up Running Mates, Ye old Job Fair, Laying Things M to M, Behind the Music, and OOTD, that is Outfit of the Day. And I... Is that like an Instagram thing? Oh, I I will take your word for it. Uh, I have an Instagram account, but I have never used it. <laughs> yeah, I think that's like when you're posting a picture of, you know, what you're wearing. You use like hashtag OOTD. But I'm not really an Instagram person. I'm just like Instagram adjacent. Yeah, I'm Instagram adjacent at the very, very best. <laughs> <laughs> Runner-up running mates was a was a tough category, I thought. Well, I mean, if you have gone deep enough in your presidential studying, then it's a cinch. Had you gone deep enough in your presidential studying for this to be a cinch? No, vice presidents was one of the categories that I punted on when studying and hoped that they would not come up. I was Mm -hmm. still able to get uh, a couple of these. I got Jack Kemp and Joseph Lieberman. I just couldn't poll quick enough that I remembered that John Edwards had run in the primaries, but I didn't remember what year that was. Edmund Muskie, I knew it was either Humphrey or McGovern, and I decided to just stay quiet on that one because I didn't remember who who was running that year. And then, you know, Jeopardy uh, kind of having some fun with uh, with the contestants. The answer in the eight, the $800 clue, the uh, clue was Jack Kemp, and the answer was Bob Dole. And then under the $1,000 clue, the next selection, uh, the clue was Bob Dole, and the answer was Gerald Ford, and I just wasn't able to uh, get my brain kind of out of Jack Kemp Bob Dole gear quickly enough to get it into Bob Dole Gerald mm-hmm. Ford gear. Yeah, that that was a fun turnaround, and I'm glad we hit those in order. Yes, yeah, sometimes playing top-down pays off. You get to see the little fun things that the writers throw in there, building it. Uh, one clue off of the next. Yeah. Yeah, I had, I, I was kicking myself. Maybe this is something I should study. Not that I ever, you know, not that it's going to come up in Jeopardy again, but you know, for trivia purposes, because mm-hmm. I've, I've studied vice presidents a bit. I'm not perfect, but I've got some of them. And I've studied the candidates that presidents defeated in the general election. But these were the people who would have been vice president if that ticket had won, Um, you know, so it was like just one level down from anything Mm -hmm. I've, you know, really spent significant time with. Yeah, yeah, I was the same way. I I had studied presidential losers. And I, you know, briefly, briefly touched on major vice presidents, but I did not think to go losing vice presidential candidates. Yeah, we get daily double number one in the laying things M to M category. Uh, Those are um, the responses will begin and end with M. At the $800 level, uh, John uncovers it and makes it a true daily double with $1,200. And they were all tied with $1,200 at that point. And he gets the clue. I declare this Latin word to mean a suspension of activity. Um, And he correctly responds, what is moratorium? Yeah, wordplay, not usually in my best category, but I did manage to get that one. Uh, Just declare was what tipped me off more than you know, begins and ends with him. That was just kind of the, the confirmation for me. But, um, you know, uh, John apparently didn't share my struggles because he just knocked that one right out of the park immediately. Yep. We had a uh, 
a tough rebound right below that at the $1,000 level in M to M. A whirlpool off Norway's coast or a tumultuous state of things? Lau rang in with what is Maelstorm. Unfortunately, that is a slight mispronunciation, um, enough that it doesn't count. Um, so John picked up the rebound with what is Maelstrom. Yes, that's, you know, just switching up those two letters is enough. It definitely changes the pronunciation. Uh, definitely mm-hmm. would have changed the spelling if you spell it out phonetically. And John was quick enough to get in there, you know, off of, you know, what what is a tough beat for Lau, especially under a bottom row clue? Yeah. Jeopardy contestant coordinators are clear in the briefing that you don't necessarily need to know how to pronounce something correctly if your pronunciation is a viable phonetic pronunciation that shows that you know how it's spelled. Yes, and uh, something like that comes up later on in the week. But uh, the the trick is you can't say it in a way that would change the spelling of it. You have right. to, you know, you can break it down syllable by syllable and maybe and mispronounce them, but as long as you're saying the syllables in a way that still adds up to the same word, you'll be okay. Yeah. Just a clue that I enjoyed, uh, the $800 clue under Behind the Music. Mm. The clue was, in concert, after playing this song that begins, Don't Go Changing to Try and Please Me, Billy Joel said, and then we got divorced. The correct response to that, which Dennis got, is just the way you are. Uh, I just find that a fun story, that Billy Joel had a huge hit. Uh, one, one, I believe, song of the year and record of the year for that song. Mm-hmm. And then the epilogue of that story is the woman that he wrote it for eventually divorced him. I, I just get a kick out of that. Uh, he's, I, I saw Billy Joel con- in concert once, and he does have a very uh, wry sense of humor, especially when it comes to that particular story. Mm, yeah. Less of a kick out of the one below it, which was about um, Amy Winehouse and the song Rehab. Yes. So, oof. Yeah, that uh, also a sad ending, but definitely a sadder ending to that song. Yeah, for sure. So moving into uh, the Double Jeopardy round, uh, Dennis had the first selection. He had $2,000. Uh, Lau was in second place with 3800 and John was in the lead with 4400 uh, The categories in the Double Jeopardy round were Lock Him Up, Earth History, TV spinoffs where they give the spinoff and the uh, contestants had to give the source show a higher royalty ways to say go away and pound sand. Uh, So again, Jeopardy accidentally being political with a lock him up category on day two of the impeachment hearings. Um, Sometimes the news just finds them. (laughs) This was another another case (laughs) where it did. Yeah, they taped in what, like November? Yeah, I think this um, was either late October or the first week of November, uh, some somewhere around there. Uh, uh-huh. But yeah, they they really nailed that one. Yep. <laughs> yeah, that category is fine. It kind of uh, it ended up jumping all over the place. Um, a couple clues about mobsters, a clue about an author, a clue a more current events clue about politics. Uh, that was a nice little, uh, not it wasn't potpourri exactly, but it managed to hit on a lot of different subjects. Yeah. Um, ways to say go away and pound sand are another one of those uh, topics that, yeah. that sound related. Pound sand being a way to say go away, but that category was all about uh, George Sand or Ezra Pound. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I tend to do well in, in literature categories and, and did in that one as well. Um, uh, yes, but yeah, yes, that, was, that was fun. I always hear uh, I always hear the expression as well. Let me let me actually go back. Um, so at the four hundred dollar level, in ways to say go away, uh, the clue was a punny way to say go away is make like a tree and do this, um, 
John responded, "What is leaf?" I I remember hearing that like on the on the playground as a kid as leave. Um, although maybe we just were saying it wrong. Where I mean, leaf sort of makes more sense with make like a tree, right? Like it should be leaf or leaves. Yeah, I feel like I've heard that one both ways too. I I'm interested to know if they would have accepted leave or if that would have been another kind of sherbert sherbet situation where mm-hmm. they'll accept the pronunciation you know maybe depending on what they determine the clue to be asking for if one of them is kind of eliminated by the wording of the clue you know maybe it would have been incorrect or maybe it would have been a situation where as long as you don't pull a biff tannin and say make like a tree and get out of here uh they would have <laughs> given you credit for it yeah yeah, I, I, I sort of wondered about that. Um, probably, my guess is they would have. I mean, it's hard to find an authoritative source on like a playground <laughs> taunt, right? Like, Just find a playground. Um, I'm sure there's one in Culver City. <laughs> we find Daily Double Two at the two thousand dollar level in a higher royalty. Dennis finds it. It's a video Daily Double, so there's a there's an image clue there. And wagers two thousand, um, which is the true value of the clue. He has forty four hundred at that point to John's eight thousand and Lau's eighteen hundred, and he gets the clue. That's the Pope putting the crown on Charles V. So this must be the title he's receiving in fifteen thirty. Um, and he correctly responds, "What is the Holy Roman Emperor?" So that brings him uh, a lot closer, although not quite into the lead at that point. Yeah, I mean, I I didn't know Charles V in particular. Uh, I did know that the Pope was the one who crowned Charlemagne and um, mm-hmm. Holy Roman Emperor Otto. Uh, so I was just able to kind of make that leap. Otto actually came up, uh, another thing that came up in Learned League fairly recently. Mm-hmm. So I was able to make that jump. Okay, if the Pope crowned them, I'm going to assume that the Pope crowned him as well, which would make him the Holy Roman Emperor. Yeah. Yeah, I guessed Holy Roman Emperor, not with complete confidence, but it seemed right for the time period and with and with the Pope crowning him. Holy Roman Emperors are probably pretty low on the list of things that you need to memorize all of them. Yeah. Um, but memorizing two of them was enough for me to pull that one out. Yeah. Daily Double 3 was also found by Dennis uh, with the 18th clue of the round, so a few clues later. Uh, it was under the $1,200 clue in Ways to Say Go Away. Dennis was still in second at this point. He had $9,600, trailing John with 11600 and ahead of Lau, uh, who was down to 1000 Dennis wagered 2500 which would be enough to give him a $500 lead with the correct answer. Uh, the clue was, in this 2017 horror film, Lakeith Stanfield delivers the two-word title line. Dennis responded with the correct answer of what is Get Out, which moved him up into the lead. You know, for a question like that, a fairly current pop culture, it's definitely easier if you've seen the movie. It's also easy if you're a Lakeith Stanfield fan, which I consider myself to be. I think he's a great actor and love him in pretty much everything that I've seen him in. But even without that, if you remember that Get Out was a, you know, a surprise hit phenomenon in 2017 with Jordan Peele eventually winning the Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay, uh, you've got a shot to uh, put the pieces together even if you haven't actually seen the movie yeah um another great movie i think i have given zero book recommendations so far <laughs> characteristically but now a couple of movie recommendations yeah, yeah. Uh, get out of mr smith goes to washington a great double feature yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah and it was it was uh it was good to see dennis know that one you could sort of see yeah i felt, felt like i saw realization dawn 
I like that. I, I mean, that's why that's why they have the daily doubles, right? So that you can like sort of watch somebody's face as they work through or don't the clue. Yeah, it's, um, it's like that element of human drama. Like you can see them, you can see the gears turning with those. It's not. It doesn't have to be instant recall like every other clue does. Like you get to kind of watch the moment play out over their faces. They're as they're digging and digging and digging, and then hopefully in this situation, like Dennis does, you know, it comes to you, and you can kind of see that relief wash over their faces. They realize that they've that they've gotten it. Yeah, makes for good TV. It does. Let's see. Uh, the TV spinoffs category. There were a couple of fairly new ones in there. In fact, those were, those were all relatively new. I mean, there were, there wasn't a single uh, Norman Lear All in the Family spinoff to be found. Mm-hmm. Mayans MC. The MC stands for Motorcycle Club, uh, was spun off of Sons of Anarchy a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Schooled, starring AJ Michaela as Lainey Lewis, now a music teacher, uh, is a fairly new show, uh, which is a spinoff of The Goldbergs, which I believe was filming on the uh, the Sony lot in Culver City when we were out there taping the Tournament of Champions. And then uh, the $1,600 clue in that category, set in Seattle, Station 19, uh, that is a new Grey's Anatomy spinoff, uh, the second Grey's Anatomy spinoff, I believe, after uh, Private Practice, which was uh, earlier in the uh, the 2010s, I believe. Uh, with a show like Grey's that's been on 15 or 16 years now, they're bound to have, have a, had a couple of spinoffs at this point. Yeah, and I, I sort of noted um, it's, it can be tough to sort of uh, write those clues so that they go up in difficulty level. At the intervals, you know, that, that sort of, in, in a way that sort of reflects the, the monetary intervals. But you can see they sort of did it with, um, by what supplementary imp- information they gave, as well as I think maybe, you know, sort of how well-known or popular the shows are. Maybe, I don't know. I, I don't feel like I have a, a good read on that necessarily. Um, but Mayans MC, I didn't know at all um, at the $800 level, but knowing, uh, since they provided the MC stands for motorcycle club, all I had to do was think what television show is about motorcycles and, and Sons of Anarchy came right away. Yeah. Whereas with, uh, the $1,600 clue set in Seattle station 19, Dennis and John mm-hmm. both buzzed in with incorrect answers. Um, both with reasonable guesses. Well, John's guess was talk radio. I think he was going for news radio, which I believe is set in Seattle. Uh, and Dennis then buzzed in on a rebound with what is Frasier, which is definitely set in Seattle. So they mm-hmm. gave you they gave you the city and kind of put it on you to narrow down, you know, what what Seattle show they're actually asking for there. Right. Um, and I wonder with the word station whether they started thinking about like a uh, like a television uh, or radio yes, station yeah. instead of a fire station. Yes. Good point. Um, so going into Final Jeopardy, we have Dennis at fourteen thousand five hundred. John in the lead at 15,200, um, and Lau is uh, in a distant third with 200. She was on her honeymoon when they taped. Yes, that, 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 was, that was one of the better stories we've had in a while. Like, yeah. you, you get that call and you move head of heaven and earth to make sure that you can be out in Culver City. If that means you're honeymooning at the Doubletree, then you're honeymooning at the Doubletree. Yeah, it didn't go her way, but I hope that uh, I hope that it was really fun and joyful for the two of them, regardless. Oh, absolutely! Like regardless of how it yeah. goes, that's a good story. That's that's a memorable yeah. honeymoon. We get the category U.S. territories and the clue of the five inhabited U.S. territories. This is the only one where cars drive on the left. And um, Lau wagers everything. I mean, you know, why not, I guess. Um, and correctly responds, what are the U.S. Virgin Islands? Dennis wagers 14,101 and responds, what is Guam? 
So he drops down to 399. That is, uh, that's a wagering error we've, uh, we've talked about a number of times before. From that position, you don't want to make a huge wager. John has made a cover bet, 13,801, um, and also gets the response correct, what are the U.S. Virgin Islands? And I think Alex noted the influence of the nearby British Virgin, Virgin Islands as something to, something to think about there. I was not able to think of all of the inhabited U.S. territories. Did not get myself to U.S. Virgin Islands. Did you? No, I didn't either, despite having uh, taken a vacation within the past couple of years to the U.S. Virgin Islands. I guess I was too busy sightseeing to actually pay attention to which side of the street that everyone was driving on. Uh, I guess mm-hmm. I guess Guam. Uh, I guess I figured that it was more likely that a, uh, a that it was possible that a Spanish, a former Spanish colony, st- drove on the left side of the road. Probably overthought that one and should have thought, okay, it'll be something British because I know that the British drive on the left side of the road. Uh, and then mm-hmm. making that leap from British Virgin Islands to U.S. Virgin Islands uh, wouldn't have been that big of a step. But nope, uh, not not my final Jeopardy. Yeah, I also guessed Guam. But John finishes with $29,001, um, so he is our champion going into Thursday. So moving on to Thursday's match, uh, today's contestants were uh, Christine Delorme, an attorney from Washington, D.C., Justin Weatherby, a business manager from New York, New York, and John Cuevas, a slot floor person from San Marcos, California, whose one-day cash winnings total $29,001. The categories for the Jeopardy round are Entering the Language, The County Line, New on the Bookshelf, Heaven's Kitchen, The Rest of the Movie's Title, and The Operating Theater. I really want to know if the... um, the $600 clue under the operating theater is actually true because that just sounds bizarre to me. The clue was a Spotify survey shows most surgeons listen to music in the OR and the number one selection is this band's Rock You Like a Hurricane. John buzzed in with the correct answer of the Scorpions, but that just sounds like a really kind of aggro song to be listening to when you're performing surgery in the operating room. Not that I'm one to ever question the knowledge of the Jeopardy writers, but I would love to see Spotify's data on that one. Yeah. I mean, on the one hand, you don't think of them as like necessarily the most like comprehensive and authoritative. On the other hand, I don't know who's doing better data on music. Yeah, that was an interesting fact to to get. Yeah, don't know quite, quite what to make of that. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I remember that Scrubs used to make the joke that surgeons were the rock star of the hospital. So maybe that's a joke that is actually true. And they take that to the point where they're listening to uh, 80s hair metal uh, when they're in surgery. Who knows? Yeah, I'm not a surgeon. (laughs) We had a kind of a interesting ruling in the rest of the movie's title category. Those clues were all subtitles of movies and you were supposed to provide the main title. And at the $1,000 level, the clue was this noble name, the legend of Tarzan, Lord of the Apes. Uh, so Christine rang in with what is Lord Greystoke and Alex accepted it. After the commercial break, they came back and said that she had been ruled correct, but technically the title is just Greystoke, not Lord Greystoke. He is a lord, but that's not the title. And what they decided to do was to take away her winnings, but not penalize her as if she had given an incorrect answer. 
which you don't see that too often. Normally taking the score away, but not deducting, like not penalizing. I've mostly only seen that come up if somebody rang in with an incorrect response after a response that should have been accepted. Yes, where they kind of take you back to where you were and treat it as no harm, no foul. Yeah. I guess the explanation was kind of that including the word noble in the clue inferred that they were looking for an actual title, like like lord, uh, in the response. Um, so I guess the writers determined during the break that, that they were a little fuzzy on what they were looking for there. So, you know, mm-hmm. it, I kind of wonder why they didn't just go to a backup clue in that and retape. Yeah. But I guess, you know, if you're going to do something, no harm, no foul is probably the ideal way to go in terms of being fair to everyone. Yeah, I guess so. But uh, there was also a clue, uh, the $1,000 clue under Heaven's Kitchen. Uh, that kind of goes back to our discussion on Maelstrom about as long as you can pronounce it phonetically, you'll get credit for it. Uh, The clue was, uh, in Greece, baklava is traditionally made with 33 layers of this dough to represent the years of Jesus' life. Justin rang in and seemed to have trouble pronouncing uh, the type of dough they were looking for. He first said pilo and then philo. The correct response, which he was given credit for, is philo, spelled P-H-Y-L-L-O. So that was the case where even though he didn't get it, you know, exactly right, he got it close enough that you could see why he would say philo instead of philo and was given credit for it. Yeah, that whole Heaven's Kitchen category is uh, more my wheelhouse than I had ever really expected the category to be. Uh, food and drink is my, I think, still my number one on Learned League. I think, I, I think I'm running like a .8 something, and I'm a minister, so anything religious. My, the religion questions on Learned League get mixed in with lifestyle, um, and so, you know, like <laughs> how much I know about religion sort of gets uh, averaged out with how much I know about fashion um, and like <laughs> cruises and, you know, whatever else gets, you know, gets thrown in there. But yeah, I, I really enjoyed the Heaven's Kitchen category. Yeah, for you, that sounds like religion plus food is kind of like a, a white men can't jump or cheer style dream board that has just popped up, you know, specifically for you. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I, I do a lot of cooking. Uh, that was not my best category. I only got the 200 and the $1,000 in that one. The rest of them, I had absolutely no idea. Mm-hmm. So my food, my uh, cooking didn't pay off as, as much as my uh, lack of going to Sunday school. Mm. I know, I've, I've been yeah. bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the pretzels, um, I've I've never personally done a children's sermon about a pretzel, but like children's sermons about pretzels are like a thing that's all over the place out there where you, you know, where you uh, show a pretzel and talk about the symbolism of the arms crossed in prayer and the Trinity. Um, I actually, as a kid, I went to a pretzel factory where they showed that you, the process of like making it, you get your like rope of dough and then you bring the ends up to praise, cross to pray, twist to something else, and I think folding down, uh, I can't remember. Anyway, all right, this was a bad tangent. <laughs> um, I, I interesting. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, there's a, there was like this whole like religious sort of uh, explanation of like the sequence of how you, how you twist your pretzel. My big lasting memory from a children's sermon like that was the time that uh, someone told us that about the uh, religious out symbolism in Terminator 2 Judgment Day. 
which was an mm. interesting choice for a film that we were all far too young to have ever watched at that point. Yeah, uh, but it did that's... stick with me. All right. So yeah, I guess that was that was just you know like the hip creature before it was hip to be a hip creature. <laughs> so we find the Daily Double right at the end of the round. Um, it's clue number twenty-eight, uh, but we're going to run out of time before twenty-nine and thirty are revealed. So uh, so the Daily Double is our last clue of the round. It's in the $400 level at new on the bookshelf. John finds it and wagers 5,000 of his 8,400. At that point, Christine is at 1,800. Justin is at negative 400. So this is um, a pretty big bet that will still leave him in a solid lead if he, if he misses. He gets the clue... Christy Lefteris, the beekeeper of Aleppo, details a married couple's flight from this war-torn country. Um, and he correctly responds, what is Syria? Um, Aleppo was in the news a lot a few years back, so that's a, that's a good way to get to it. Yeah, that was, that was a good bet by John there. You know, it, he had a chance to maybe not completely slam the door, but certainly only leave a sliver of it open, getting out mm-hmm. to a lead of you know, over a le- over 10,000 at the end of uh, the single Jeopardy round, and, uh, mm-hmm. and he did. So, you know, good for yeah. him, going big, like taking advantage mm-hmm. of that daily double. Yeah, for sure. So uh, that was the last clue of the uh, the Jeopardy round, which brings us to a double Jeopardy, uh, where the categories are get your BA degree, uh, with BA in quotation marks, uh, national coats of arms, books about ancient history, proverbially yours, Place name names and the non-operating theater. And uh, Justin gets to pick first, being in third place, and he is psyched to see the non-operating <laughs> theater. It seems like he's, you know, like that's that's one of the kind of one one of the kind of categories he's been hoping for. <laughs> yeah, go, goes right to it. Um, gets the first question right to get himself out of the hole. So it paid off. Uh, but the uh, the second clue of that round was, I guess, a callback to a clue earlier or a category earlier in the week. Uh, the twelve hundred dollar clue under the non operating theater was: This comedian hopes to turn his Branson, Missouri theater into Yakov Towers, a senior community. And the answer was Mister and Soviet Russia himself, Yakov Smirnov. Mm-hmm. So I guess I guess one of the writers fell down a Yakov Smirnov YouTube rabbit hole when they were writing <laughs> these games out. Uh, another fun thing I. Um, there were in the uh, place name names category, there were uh, two clues in consecutive boxes, albeit they weren't called consecutively, about tennis players. Uh, the $1,600 clue was uh, she defeated Serena Williams to win the women's title at the 2018 U.S. Open. Uh, the response was Naomi Osaka. And then just below that in the $2,000 clue was just go with it. Andy Roddick is married to this model. And that was Brooklyn Decker. I don't know if that was intentional because the Australian Open is going on right now. Uh, Alex didn't make mm. mention of it like he did with the uh, figure skating championships uh, after the Axel clue, but uh, it's certainly another example of Jeopardy having good timing. Mm-hmm. So we get Daily Double number two in the Get Your BA Degree category. Um, correct responses in that category will be two words, the first starting with B and the second starting with A. We find it at pick number four at the $1,200 level in that category. John finds it and wagers 3,400. At that point, he has 14,600 to Christine's 1,800 and Justin's 1,200. So a very, very solid lead. And I bet he was relieved to see that daily double 
come up as well. Uh, he's really sort of starting to close close the window on any kind of comeback from the others. Um, he gets the clue uh, with an image. This hornless breed, take a look, is named in part for a place in Scotland. And we see an image of a, a, some kind of a cow. He guesses what is a bovine alley? Ally? Can't remember what he said exactly. Uh, he said bovine alley. It looked like he was alley. just looking for something cow related yeah. that began with a B-A, whether it yeah. was, you know, remotely close yeah. or not. Yeah, so good on him for remembering the category. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you if you commit in your head to bovine as your B, that sort of uh, backs you into the wrong corner. The correct response there is Black Angus. So he drops a bit, um, but he is still in a very significant lead at that point. Yeah, even in that situation, even if you get it wrong, at least you're playing good defense. Uh, you've prevented somebody else from doubling up and gaining ground on you. You know, I, I got that one wrong, too. Uh, for all the cooking that I do, I don't do red meat. So I I don't even know if I came up with something even half as good as Bovine Alley. <laughs> mm-hmm. I did manage to get that one. Just sort of more on wordplay than on knowing kinds of cows. Um, there were a few unplayed clues in this round as well. Uh, it looks like there were four total that were unplayed in, the, unplayed in this round after uh, two being unplayed in the single Jeopardy round. But uh, unlike the single Jeopardy round, they didn't hold off on finding the uh, the second daily double until the very end of the, the round. Uh, it was found with the 15th clue uh, under the $800 clue in National Coats of Arms. John found it. At this point, John had made his way back up to about where he was before his previous daily doubleness. He was at uh, fourteen eight hundred compared to Christine's forty six hundred and Justin's two thousand. John made a wager of thirty two hundred, which would just about make up the thirty four hundred that he lost on the previous daily double. Uh, the clue was Mexico's coat of arms has a nopal, a type of cactus that also has this alliterative name. Uh, John was correct with a response of what is prickly pear, which moved him up to an even $18,000. Mm-hmm. This was one where my cooking and eating paid off. Uh, even though I've never eat, uh, cooked a prickly pear, I have eaten prickly pear before. Uh, so mm-hmm. I was able to uh, put the, the alliterative clue together uh, to get the, uh, the cactus that we're looking for. Yeah, I think I have as well. There's a, there's a Nopal taco at my favorite taco place. Ooh. Yeah. So a cactus taco? A cactus taco. Yep. I've never had one of those. Uh, the only times I've had prickly pear have been in drinks or desserts. Yeah. So heading into Final Jeopardy, we have a decisive lock game. Uh, John has 22,800 to Justin's 1,200 and Christine's 5,800. And we get the category, famous names, and the clue... A new election day ritual is leaving I voted stickers on the headstone of this historic woman at a Rochester, New York cemetery. Justin wagers all 1200, which, you know, why not? And correctly responds, who is Susan B. Anthony. Uh, Christine holds at 5,800 with a zero wager um, and also has it correct. And John with a wager of 710, um, is correct as well. Um, and I wonder if that was a like a personal, like so, had some personal connection. Uh, it was. John actually told that story on Twitter um, after the match aired. Uh, his wager of 710 uh, is his sister's birthday, July 10th. And that was related to the, uh, the pin that he was wearing um, during his time on the show. 
his sister spent years on the organ donor list before receiving a kidney transplant in 2018, and he was wearing a, uh, oh, I don't remember, I didn't write down exactly what the pen said, but the pen was about um, raising awareness of organ donation. He said that uh, after he told his sister about the $710 bet, her response was, you should have bet more. She she's said, not wrong. No, she's, she's not wrong. You know, it's, it's great to, uh, to include the shout out like that. I guess it may be the uh, James Holtower um, model of making sure you have a large number that ends with 710 might have been a better, uh, better way to do it. But if he wanted to give a shout out to his sister, uh, you know, and pay, pay honor to, uh, you know, her struggle with, uh, I believe it was lupus, which mm-hmm. made it a long, hard fight for her to get a kidney transplant uh, before she finally got one, then, you know, good for him. Yeah. Thanks for that backstory. Yeah, he uh, he found me on Twitter the other night and I started following him. And I was, you know, I think that we were all kind of asking ourselves that. And I think that he was anticipating that people would be asking mm-hmm. that because, you know, he uh, he made sure to uh, to put that information out there. But yeah. uh, lo- looking at the clue, I'm kind of glad that this was a runaway because I would hate for a competitive game to be decided on, you know, what is on this on its surface a pretty straightforward clue uh it almost seems like it could have been a leftover clue from the historic grave sites uh category mm-hmm. earlier in the week really the big danger if you're thinking about a famous woman who voted is overthinking it and putting uh elizabeth katie stanton or lucretia mm-hmm. mott instead of susan b anthony you know sometimes the if it's an obvious if the answer seems obvious it is obvious right yes i'm related to lucretia mott actually oh really well, I'm yeah. glad I gave her a shout out now. I had no yeah. idea. <laughs> <laughs> um, by marriage. I, I mean, my my maiden name is Mott. Um, her married name was Mott. So she married into the same Mott family that I gotcha. um, am in. Um, but I'm not a direct descendant. So there's no like, there's no blood relation. Um, uh, in-law is fun. Yeah. In-law is yeah. cool. Yeah. So she would be like a great, 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 great aunt or something. Because she was married to a Mott, but not a Mott that I'm descended from. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. Anyway, so going into Friday, we have Ashwin Manyan, a data scientist from Hatfield, Pennsylvania. Heather Nelson, a middle school math teacher from Lake Oswego, Oregon. And John Cuevas, a slot floor person from San Marcos, California, returning with two-day cash winnings of $52,511. And we get the Jeopardy categories 1984, Ikea names, this and that. Those are my literary characters. They'll provide literary characters and you name the author. Hollywood and line and post haste. Uh, Those responses will start with H-A and will come after haste in the dictionary. I noticed they, uh, they didn't go... Top to bottom, left to right, exactly? No, they did. They did go top to bottom, left to right for the first half of the round. Then they moved around a little bit after the commercial break. Um, but the the first 15 clues they played, they played the left category, top to bottom, and then the next one, top to bottom, and then the next one, top to bottom. Yep, so close to a perfectly played round. I was getting really excited uh, going into the commercial break. Like, oh my gosh, are they going to do it? Are they going to do it? And they did play them all top to bottom, but they uh, they did the last couple out of order. So close, so close. Yeah, there were uh, there were a couple of interesting clues in this one. Um, another example of Jeopardy, you know, accidentally uh, being relevant to something in the news uh, was the four hundred dollar clue in this and that. 
uh, was a giant sculpture of a dead Norwegian blue parrot in London celebrated the 2014 reunion of this comedy troupe. Heather got the correct response of Monty Python, which of course is relevant this week after the uh, passing of Terry Jones a couple of days ago. Right. On a lighter note, uh, we got to have a little bit of fun in the Hollywood and Lime category, uh, the $200 clue. A classic nine from this 1972 film is I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse, which gave Alex a chance to do his best uh, Vito Corleone impression. John gave the correct answer there of The Godfather. Unfortunately, we didn't get to hear Alex do his impression of Edna Mode or uh, the dude from The Big Lebowski um, <laughs> in, in later questions in that category, which I personally would have gotten a huge kick of. Uh, hearing Alex spit out no capes uh, would have been outstanding. <laughs> Uh, but maybe, yes. the, maybe the next time an Incredibles category comes up. Yeah, maybe. We, uh, we had Daily Double number one very early. Clue number, uh, pick number four at the $800 level in 1984. John found it. Um, so he had 1200 and made it a true Daily Double. Uh, the others both had zero. He got the clue, thousands gathered at this iconic LA location for Olympic track and field events. And he correctly responded, uh, what is the L.A. Coliseum? Did you notice the $200 clue in post-haste by any chance? I only put this together afterwards. The clue is this last name alone or paired with McCoy. That's Hatfield. As it so happens, Ashwin is from Hatfield, Pennsylvania. Oh, wow. Um, but, John, <laughs> but John got the response. Yeah. Oh, no. So close. Yeah, there had been a clue earlier the same week, too, with um, somebody else ringing in on Vancouver and beating Lau on the buzzer. Yeah, Vancouver is like a larger city, so you, you see contestants from there, and it's, you know, at geographically significant and comes up, you know, a reasonable amount in, in jeopardy. It was a funny coincidence to have someone from the town of Hatfield. I have no idea whether there's a connection between the town of Hatfield and the Hatfields, but... Uh, Either way, but, what a, uh, either way, what a fun coincidence! Yeah, no, that was that that was fun, and I I bet Ashwin was uh, bummed not to have gotten in first on the buzzer. I, I I'm sure he knew it. Oh yeah, there was there was one in one of my games where I was like, it was it was uh oh what was it called? The answer was the Golden Spike, and I'm an Atlanta United season ticket holder, and kind of their pregame tradition is they uh, slam a big Golden Spike into the into a kind of a little monument that they've got out there. So I saw that mm -hmm. it was a promontory point that the answer was going to be Golden Spike, and I got probably too excited and buzzed in too early. Uh, oh, which I, yeah. Which I could totally see happening in that situation where it's when you're like, oh, this is this is important to me. I need to I need to be the one to say it, and you just kind of psych yourself out. And Yeah. I mean, I don't have as personal of a connection, um, but in my game, there was like a, like a religion clue. Uh, yeah, it was in the one-syllable cities... A huge Reformation monument stands in this city where Martin Luther stood before the Diet in 1521. Uh, Kyle outbuzzed me with what is forms, worms. That that um, uh, uh, the same clue uh, came up in one of my games. Uh, you had oh. to, you had to come up with uh, they gave you worms and you had to come up with Martin Luther. Mm -hmm. uh, that was yeah. a daily double in my second game, which I did not get to, but I wish I had. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's it, it's a. Uh, it's fun when you have the things with a personal connection come up and then like, ah, when somebody else, when somebody else gets it. Yeah. Just kind of shooting daggers over are, at them. Yep. Yeah. At the end of the Jeopardy round, we have John in the lead with 7,400. 
Heather has 3,200. Ashwin has 1,400. The double jeopardy categories are Neil Before Me, spelled N-E-I-L, Geographic Numbers, A Brush with Death, 13 Letter Words, The Royal Society of London, and the Grammy Awards. Uh, the Grammy Awards, which are coming up uh, as we record this, this coming Sunday. Uh, so Jeopardy mm-hmm. being intentionally topical in this case. Yeah. Daily Double number two was found very early in the round on the second clue of the round after a triple stumper on the first clue. Uh, Ashwin found it under the $1,200 clue in geographic numbers. Time he was in third place with 1400 to John's 7400 and Heather's 3200 and he bet his entire 1400 You know, on the one hand... In that situation, betting $2,000 to try and make a you know the biggest move possible is probably the right call. But on the other hand, you really can't put a price tag on getting to say true daily double. So I'm never going to fault mm. anybody too much for leaving you know a couple dollars on the board in that situation. Yeah, especially with so much of the round left to go. Exactly. Like, uh. you, you know you've got a lot of time that you can make up that additional 1200 you know, if things go yeah. well. And the clue under um, geographic numbers was, it's in the middle of the Susquehanna River, just south of Harrisburg. Ashwin didn't look like he was having any luck coming with an, up with an answer and guessed Gettysburg at the last second. Uh, the correct response was Three Mile Island. He looked like he's on the younger side of the age bracket, so maybe a little too young to remember Three Mile Island. Uh, Mm -hmm. And it was also only the second clue uncovered, um, so maybe he hadn't had time to realize that a number was going to be part of each response. That Mm -hmm. wasn't one that Alex explained at the top of the round, uh, so he might have been, you know, doubly out to sea on that one. Yeah. I remembered that it was something Mile Island, but I could not... I was thinking three, but then I wasn't wasn't confident that I had, like, the right integer. When I was... I don't know why I was learning these things years ago, but I would always get Three Mile Island and Love Canal mixed up. And then eventually, once I got them to stick, they have stuck through thick and thin. They are just, there's a couple of neurons in my brain that one belongs to Three Mile Island and the other belongs to Love Canal. (laughs) Nice. I was excited about the Neil Before Me category. Um, And then at the $800 level, we got Neil Gaiman won a Newbery Medal for the Graveyard Book. This Neil won a Pulitzer for Lost in Yonkers. I knew that one, it was Neil Simon, but I was also a little bummed to see that clue because I was like, all right, I guess that we're not going to be answering any questions about Neil Gaiman. I was just happy to see Neil Gaiman get a shout out. Like I would have been, I, I been extremely ready to, to, uh, to yell out Neil Gaiman or, you know, the graveyard book or American gods or something at some point, uh, because I've got a bookshelf right next to me that has like the complete and collected works of Neil Gaiman sitting on it. I really hope that the graveyard book gets adapted for film one day. I know that uh, Henry Selleck, who directed The Nightmare Before Christmas, was attached at one point. I think that would be just an absolutely wonderful pairing of source material and uh, creator driving it. I don't think there's been any progress on that in a long time. I'm not even sure if Selleck is still attached, but that's one of those like you know hypothetical films that I would just absolutely love to see one day. Oh yeah, that would be great. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it, I'm never bad. Uh, it's never bad to see Neil Gaiman get a mention on Jeopardy. But I was like you, I was very, very ready to answer a Neil Gaiman question. <laughs> <laughs> Another clue that jumped out to me was the uh, $800 clue under a brush with death, uh, which turned into an art category. The clue was a Tahitian girl named Taha Amana stares at the viewer in his painting Manau Tupapau spirit of the dead watching and i apologize to any tahitians for completely butchering that pronunciation it was a triple stumper the correct answer was paul gauguin 
uh, that just jumped out to me because anything about a painting in the in Tahiti is going to be Gauguin. Uh, that's yeah. That's another one of those classic Jeopardy Pavlovs that you mm-hmm. know they come up time and time again, and they're quick and easy to memorize. There may well be other Tahitian artists. Unfortunately, none were expected to know for Jeopardy purposes. Well, as far as Jeopardy is um, concerned, there's one artist who lives in Tahiti. There's you know one Norwegian playwright. There's one Swedish playwright. And apologies to all the others who worked in those mediums and were from those countries. Yeah. As you said, it turned into an art category. I finally put together that a brush with death is the brush is because it's a paintbrush. Yeah. I, I, I did not catch it until just now. Oh, now we're back to even. You pointed out USG for me, and I pointed out a brush with death for you. Yeah. A brush with death is where we find Daily Double Three at clue number 11 at the $1,600 level. John finds it and wagers 4000 So at that point, John has 10200 to Heather's 4400 and Ashwin's $400. Um, so a $4,000 wager will... Um, extend his lead if he's right he'll still be in the lead by a couple thousand or so if he's wrong he gets the clue el greco's painting of the virgin mary cradling her dead son is called this like michelangelo's famous sculpture of the same subject and he struggles with that one for a while and eventually he says what is the calvary alex notices that heather is over there wishing she had this clue um the correct answer is the Pieta. Yeah, I think we all know that feeling that Heather was having when somebody gets a daily double that is just, you you know it, and you know that you know it, and there's just nothing that you can do about it. Yeah. I mean, you know, except except watch them drop within reach, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Ideally, you watch them drop within reach. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, I guess lucky her. Uh, but that, that ended up being a pretty significant miss, because if John had gotten that one, it would have been another lock game going into Final Jeopardy. But instead, uh, we had a very tight match on our hands uh, at the end of the Double Jeopardy round. John was still in the lead with 10,600, but Heather was right on his heels with 9,200, and Ashwin was in striking distance with 6,000. The category was best-selling authors, and the clue was, now in her 70s, this author splits her time between Paris and San Francisco, often writing 20 to 22 hours a day on an old typewriter. So sometimes you get... A clue about a historic woman associated with voting who's from New York. And sometimes you get this. Um, (laughs) Jeopardy giveth and Jeopardy taketh away. (laughs) Yes. Um, Yeah, I had no idea. No. Uh, As soon as this true clue came up, I said triple stumper. Mm -hmm. This is like a classic either you know it or you don't clue. And it's a clue that's really, really tricky to know. There's not a lot there to puzzle out unless you happen to know of an author who splits her time between Paris and San Francisco and is famous for spending long hours writing on a typewriter. And those aren't pieces of information that are, you know, easily associated with somebody like, you know, Edgar Allan Poe with Baltimore or Shakespeare with Stratford-upon-Avon. I guessed Janet Ivanovich, which was incorrect, but at least I named a best-selling female author in her 70s. Uh, I was really proud of myself for at least um, at least coming relatively close. Although uh, my wife did want me to mention that she got it right, uh, so maybe it wasn't nice. as difficult as we think it is. Um, she, just, I, I said triple stumper, and at the same time, she shouted out the correct answer. <laughs> yeah. All right. Good for her. I'll be sure to tell her you said so. Yeah. So uh, Ashwin wagers one dollar. 
and guesses who is Marie, uh, dot, 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 question mark, which is incorrect. Heather guesses Mary Higgins Clark, who I felt like I knew that name. And then I looked her up and I was like, okay, you know, like in the, maybe in the same kind of family, like, right. Think approximately right age, you know, best selling, you know, like. Yeah. Modern day author. Mur- yeah. Like murder thrillery kinds of things. She makes a 1,401 wager. Yeah, the, the rare underbet from second place. Yeah, so she, I mean, you would, what was she trying to do there? She was trying to cover, she was trying to get above John. Although by doing that, she left herself open to a double up from Ashwin. Um, right. She, she had enough of a lead on Ashwin that she could have covered a double up and still been ahead of him on a triple stumper assuming rational betting from everyone. But her bet actually ended up paying off because um, John gave the answer of Nora Ephron and bet 7801, the standard cover bet. Uh, so Heather, uh, despite un- the rare under bet from second place, ended up winning with a score of $7,799. Mm-hmm. Did we ever say the correct answer? Uh, I, I think you said it when you when you mentioned that your wife had shouted it out. It's Danielle Steele. Yes, the correct answer is Danielle Steele, if we haven't said that yet. <laughs> Yeah, so Heather will be back on Monday. Another fun week of Jeopardy in the books. <laughs> yeah, this was a good week. All right, so traditionally I am supposed to guess the topic of the deep dive. Um, let's, let's really put you to the test. <laughs> how, how well do you know me? Oh, there's the question, huh? I, I can certainly narrow it down for you if you'd like. Uh, well, I, I have I have sort of narrowed down narrowed it down a little bit because you checked in with me on Tuesday night about how long it was supposed to be. So <laughs> I've got it down to a specific game. Um, I don't think we're talking about the final Jeopardy, which was Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Did you try to make a point of heading toward a triple stumper? Uh, no, I did not. Is it anything from in Soviet Russia? It is not. Okay. Oh. Um, we're not talking about Jimi Hendrix, are we? Uh, we are not. That would have been a good one, but no. Yeah. Okay. Um, let me see. How many guesses? I've, I've taken two guesses. Let me take one more guess. Are we talking about Strindberg? No, we're not. Okay. All right. What are we doing? Uh, we are talking about Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Oh! <laughs> nice! You psyched yourself This will out. be fun. You, you, were, you were on the right track right from the get-go. You almost had me pegged. Cool. I, I'm excited about this. Yeah. Oh, so am I. Uh, like this. This was the reason that I rewatched it earlier this week. So we are going to be talking about the subject of Tuesday's Final Jeopardy, the 1939 film *Mr. Smith Goes to Washington*. It is directed by Frank Capra and stars Jimmy Stewart, Gene Arthur, and my personal pick for the best actor and my favorite actor of all time, uh, Claude Rains. Frank Capra and Jimmy Stewart are one of the more famous director and actor pairings in film history. Uh, So first I'm going to give a little bit of background on the two of them. Frank Capra was born in 1897 in a small village in Italy and immigrated to the United States with his family when he was five years old. Uh, His family was poor growing up, and while his parents wanted him to enter the workforce immediately after he graduated from high school, Frank decided to attend college at the California Institute of Technology. He would then proceed to pay his way through college with a series of odd jobs, and after graduating would enlist to fight for the United States in World War I, and then became a naturalized U.S. citizen upon his return home. 
Frank Capra got his first job in the film industry by lying about his film expertise, uh, which was at this point next to nothing. But that got him a job directing a one-reel silent film comedy for a new film studio based in his hometown of San Francisco. He then parlayed that experience to a job working in Hollywood on silent film comedies, first working as a film cutter, a writer, and an assistant director, and eventually rising through the ranks to become a film director in his own right. He then began working exclusively with Columbia Pictures in 1928, a partnership that would last until 1941, where he became an early proponent of the use of sound in films and made the transition from silence to talkies in 1929. In the 1930s, Capra embarked on an unprecedented and arguably unequaled run of success. During the decade, he received five Best Director Oscar nominations, winning three of those, and directed two films that won Best Picture and six films that were nominated for Best Picture. These films that were nominated include classics like Lady for a Day, It Happened One Night, Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, Lost Horizon, You Can't Take It With You, and in 1939, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. So by the time that Mr. Smith Goes to Washington rolls around, Frank Capra is working at the peak of his powers and possibly the peak that any director has ever been working at. He's gone from being a poor immigrant to a film industry employee with no experience in the film industry to one of the most successful and acclaimed directors of his day. By 1939, he was essentially the living embodiment of the American dream, which would become a theme throughout many of his pictures. By comparison, in 1939, Jimmy Stewart was not yet the Hollywood icon Jimmy Stewart that people would associate with him being today. Good voice. Yeah, thank you. I, I practiced that one. Uh, <laughs> uh, Jimmy Stewart had been a theater actor throughout college and for his first several years after graduation. He had only made his big screen debut in 1935 after signing a contract with MGM Studios. He appeared in a whopping eight films in 1936, a string of work that saw him develop the boyish persona that he would become well known for, and appear in his first leading role. However, that first leading role was not well received critically or commercially, and he spent much of the rest of that year taking on supporting roles in more successful films. His breakout as a lead actor didn't come until 1937 in a film called Navy Blue and Gold, uh, which was the film where Frank Capra first took notice of him. Capra then arranged for MGM to loan him to Columbia uh, so he could cast him as the lead in You Can't Take It With You, opposite Gene Arthur in 1938. You Can't Take It With You would go on to become one of the highest grossing films of the year and would win Best Picture and Best Director at the Academy Awards while turning Stewart into a major star. So at this point, the stage is set for Mr. Smith Goes to Washington in 1939. Uh, it's a reunion of the director and the two lead actors of the previous year's Best Picture winner. Uh, it's featuring a director who is arguably already a Hollywood legend and a lead actor who is a freshly minted superstar. The result was a film that is perfectly in tune with Frank Capra's sensibilities and Jimmy Stewart's on-screen persona and is my personal pick for Jimmy Stewart's best performance and Frank Capra's best film. So, uh, to talk more about the film itself, uh, the major characters in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington are the titular character, Jefferson Smith, played by Jimmy Stewart. Jefferson Smith is an idealistic scout leader from an unnamed western state. Uh, the film goes through great pains to never actually mention the state that, uh, that is in question, but I always picture it being somewhere like Wyoming or Montana, because Jefferson Smith is a man who loves nature loves being outdoors, loves American history, and believes in the promise of the American democratic experiment. His father was a progressive newspaper owner who spoke out on behalf of the little guy against major corporate interests, uh, and was eventually actually murdered uh, by one of those corporate interests after speaking out against them a little bit too harshly. 
Smith's sense of justice and hope, which carry him throughout the film, came from the lessons imparted on him by his father. Despite a total lack of political experience, Smith is chosen to become a U.S. senator by the governor of his state after the death of a sitting senator. Smith isn't chosen for his political acumen or any political skill, but because he's expected to be a pliable rube who can be easily swayed to follow the wishes of his state's political machine. This is Jimmy Stewart at peak Jimmy Stewart-ish. Jefferson Smith is pretty much George Bailey if he had gone into politics. Jefferson Smith is good-natured, good-hearted, down-to-earth, more than a little bit naive, and above all, a relatable everyman. Co-starring in the film is Gene Arthur, who plays the role of Clarissa Saunders. Uh, As I mentioned earlier, Gene Arthur and Jimmy Stewart had been paired in 1938's You Can't Take It With You, so being able to team the two of them back up together was a major coup. Saunders is the former aide to this deceased senator, who later becomes aide to Smith after his arrival in Washington. Years spent in Washington politics have turned her into a bit of a jaded cynic, but Smith reawakens her idealistic spirit, and they eventually become partners, confidants, and because he's Jimmy Stewart and she's Jean Arthur, they fall in love. Next up is Senator Joseph Payne, played by my personal king of all cinema, Claude Rains. Payne is the senior senator from Smith's state. He was a longtime friend and admirer of Smith's father, and early on in his political career, he shared that same idealistic outlook. Uh, however, Payne long ago sold out his ideas to the state's political machine in exchange for assured re-election each term and the growing power that goes along with it. In order to maintain his power, uh, Payne does the occasional political favor for Jim Taylor, the leader of the machine, who is played by Edward Arnold. Jim Taylor is a media mogul and political kingmaker with uh, Senator Payne and at least three of the congressmen representing the state in his pocket. He has used his access to Congress to line his own pockets with graft money from pork barrel appropriations bills, and his latest attempt to do so is what kicks off the film's plot. The film begins with the unexpected death of the aforementioned sitting senator, uh, which represents a problem for both Taylor and Payne. Taylor has recently bought land in their home state under the name of a dummy corporation, and Payne has tacked on money to an appropriations bill working its way through Congress that would buy that land from Taylor using government funds to build a dam. Uh, A dam that is unnecessary for the state, but hey, this is graft we're talking about. The deceased senator was also a member of Taylor's political machine, uh, which means that Taylor and Payne will need to find a replacement who will go along with their plan and not make a fuss in Congress. Being the politically influential kingmaker that he is, Taylor goes to the governor of the state and, air quotes, suggests the name of a crony of his to fill the empty seat, someone who he knows will be pliable and someone who will grease the wheels of this this graft bill that he's trying to get passed. However, when the governor announces this idea uh, of this appointment, it's met with outrage by the people of the state who demand a reform-minded candidate of their own choosing. Later that night over dinner, the governor's children suggest Jefferson Smith, a local scout leader who has recently made headlines for helping to put out a large forest fire. The children should suggest Smith because they are scouts in his troop, and they view Smith as a great man who would always act in the people's best interests. However, the governor realizes that Smith could work as a compromise candidate between what Taylor wants and what his constituents want. Smith is an everyman that would appeal to his constituency, and he's known for being an idealist. But he's also a political neophyte, which should make it easy to keep him in check, keep him in the dark, and keep him under control, which is something that would appeal to Taylor's interests. Taylor agrees to this compromise, and Smith accepts the appointment and is whisked off to Washington. Initially, Taylor and Payne's suspicions of Smith proved to be be true. 
Smith is definitely a rube, and he is definitely in over his head. Uh, no sooner does he arrive in Washington than he begins to get eaten alive by the press and other politicians, and the women of the big city have a tendency to overwhelm him as well. He's so naive and genuine that he doesn't realize when he's being made fun of by the press, when he's being taken advantage of by other senators. What Payne and Taylor don't count on is that Smith is uncorrupted and uncorruptible, and actually wants to use his position to do good for his state, which is a position that is completely unfamiliar to two men who are, at this point, pretty much in it just for themselves. As an example of Smith's idealism, as soon as we see him leave the train station in Washington, the film embarks on a whirlwind tour of historic sites throughout Washington, D.C. and American history. We see Smith visiting D.C. monuments, we hear a reading of the Gettysburg Address at the Lincoln Memorial, we see him visit Statuary Hall, we see images of the Founding Fathers, the Declaration of Independence, and the Constitution, all set to appropriately patriotic music. Even after this montage is over, Smith keeps talking about visiting Mount Vernon and makes uh, repeated trips to the Lincoln Memorial in order to gather inspiration. This sequence here is just peak Frank Capra. Uh, it's the reason that the phrase Capra-esque has become an adjective when referring to films. Uh, it's got this po-faced optimism that toes right up against the line of being corny but never manages to fully cross over it, remains totally effective, totally wholesome, and totally optimistic. Not only does it serve to put the viewer in a very patriotic, yay, ideal America uh, mood uh, that is going to pay off in spades later in the film, but it also helps to put you in Jefferson Smith's mindset. This, like these images, these people, these ideals, like, this is the America that he really believes in, and these are the footsteps that he has come to D.C. to follow in. Uh, the film makes this very clear on his first day in the Senate. Uh, a fellow senator tells him that the desk that he will be using was once used by Daniel Webster. And that's, these are the ideals that Jefferson Smith feels like he, is, he has a responsibility and an obligation to live up to. This sequence is also an example of why Jimmy Stewart and Frank Capra are a perfect match. Capra had an unshakable belief in the promise of America, as after all, he had essentially lived the American dream up to this point in his life. And he's working here in tandem with Jimmy Stewart, an actor who has this innate ability to portray an internal sense of decency and idealism. Jimmy Stewart is able to get you to believe that Smith actually believes in all of this stuff. Uh, that he could be this innocent and this idealistic, even when you're watching it, you know, this week, uh, in the context of a much more cynical political environment, uh, you still believe that, you know, people like Jefferson Smith can exist and that this system of government can work the way that he believes it can work because Jimmy Stewart makes you believe it. Uh, so back to the plot, Smith tries to assert himself in D.C. and announces his plans to Payne to learn the political process and study all of the bills that are put before him. He quickly becomes aware, though, that he has been selected simply to fill a seat and vote as he's told to vote. However, as a way of making him feel useful, and in order to hopefully keep him distracted from focusing too much on the appropriations bill, uh, Senator Payne and, uh, suggests that Smith pick a pet issue of his and introduce a bill to see if he can get it passed. Smith chooses to write a bill to create a national scout park in his home state. He is a scout troop leader, after all that will be funded by the government loaning money to the state, and the money then being paid back to the government in the form of small donations from the scouts who visit. Uh, at this point, Smith and Saunders, uh, his aide and secretary, played by Jean Arthur, have met, and she has decided to remain on his staff instead of quitting and getting out of D.C. after the death of his predecessor. Uh, Saunders then gives Smith and the audience a crash course in how to draft legislation and pass a bill, 
uh, which basically is the Schoolhouse Rock I'm Just a Bill song without music. <laughs> and, and it explains why the first time I saw this film was in a middle school social studies and civics class. Mm -hmm. Saunders helps Smith to write the bill, but as he is describing it to her, she realizes that the location that Smith has chosen for his part is the exact same location as the land that Taylor has bought and that Payne is trying to pass the bill to purchase and have a dam put on. Smith, however, is unaware of Taylor and Payne's plans for the site and nervously introduces his bill before the Senate. It gets immediate support from the other senators. It gets uh, a, rouse, a round of applause from the audience in the viewing gallery. And it also gets uh, immediate support from the public in form of small donations from scouts to help pay the government back for the loan before they've even spent the money on the park. However, this lets Taylor and Payne know that Smith has plans for the land that, are the, that is the key to their graft scheme. They realize that Smith's bill could ruin their plans and expose them, uh, so they work together to forward their bill and neutralize Smith's. Saunders, however, has been fully won over by Smith's idealism at this point and doesn't want to see him become a pawn in their scheme, so she informs Smith of the actual plans for Taylor and Payne to make money via the dam. Smith then confronts Payne over the scheme regarding the dam, where Payne confirms his involvement and explains himself by saying that as long as he occasionally helps to advance Taylor and the political machine's interests, Payne can ensure his own re-election and continue to do good for the people of their state. Um, the film does make it clear that Payne has been doing a good job for the state, that wages are up, that unemployment is down, um, and that it, things are doing very well for them, but it never lets Payne off the hook for putting Taylor's interests ahead of everything else. Payne tells Smith that Washington is no place for the, the idealist that Payne once was and that Smith now is, and that politics is all about compromise. Smith, for his part, is shocked by this revelation, having always admired Payne as a good and honest man who was a friend to his father, and refuses to go along quietly. Payne then has a meeting with Taylor and tries to back out of the scheme, having been somewhat won over by, um, by Smith's idealism and Smith's pleas to his decency. However, Taylor threatens to ruin Payne's career and the chances that he has at the presidency, which have been mentioned a couple of times that Payne is a potential presidential candidate in an upcoming election. Realizing that Smith will never work with them and that Smith will try to expose their scheme, Taylor decides to remove Smith from office by hanging the guilt for the scheme on Smith's head. Taylor then forges documents and coerces testimony to make it look like it is Smith, not Taylor, who actually owns the land, and it is therefore Smith who is trying to profit by passing his own bill. Payne is conflicted and feels guilty about hanging Smith out to dry like this, but he ultimately acquiesces to Taylor's plan. Just as Smith is about to raise his objection to the appropriations bill and the dam in, uh, in front of the Senate, Payne interrupts him and accuses Smith of corruption. This leads to an ethics investigation and trial against Smith, where Taylor's forged evidence and coerced testimony, including testimony from Payne, set the stage for Smith's expulsion from Congress. Saunders, just before the vote is to be held on Smith's expulsion, tells Smith to filibuster the vote and to use his time on the floor to offer his evidence about the dam scam. With Saunders advising Smith on senatorial procedure from the gallery, Smith launches into a filibuster, hopeful that his actions will make headlines and rally the citizens of his state to his cause. However, Payne continually tries to stall him in the chamber, other senators show, show little interest in what Smith has to say, and Taylor's media machine kicks into high gear, stifling all local reporting on Smith's accusations. Taylor goes so far as to falsify stories about Smith in the newspapers and on the radio that he owns, 
and has his agents attack Smith's scouts as they try to deliver newsletters laying out the truth of Smith's actions. This is genuinely upsetting. There's a scene where Smith's scouts are driving, trying to deliver newsletters door to door, and some of Taylor's men actually drive them off the road. Just goes to show you how far Taylor is willing to go to protect his graft and to get Smith out of office. So after a 24-hour filibuster, uh, 24 consecutive hours of Jefferson Smith holding the Senate floor, despite other senators trying to take it from him, uh, during which he pontificates on the promise of the American government, reads from the Declaration of Independence, reads from the Constitution, talks about the way things ought to work, which is basically Frank Capra, Jimmy Stewart, and the screenwriter talking to the audience, Smith eventually manages to break through to Payne. Just as Smith passes out from exhaustion, Payne himself has a breakdown, admits his corruption, and confesses that all of Smith's accusations are true. The film ends with chaos erupting in the Senate, with Smith and Saunders confessing their love for one another, and with the president of, his, of the Senate watching it all with a bemused look on his face. So the film ends with Smith and democracy having prevailed over cynicism and corruption. Now, despite Mr. Smith Goes to Washington being recognized as a classic of the golden age of Hollywood, it was received somewhat harshly upon its release. Its premiere was held in Washington, D.C. at a gala event at Constitution Hall to an audience of about 4,000 people, which included 45 sitting U.S. senators. That particular portion of the audience was far from pleased with the way they were depicted in the film, with some, according to Frank Capra's autobiography, yelling at the screen during the film and storming out midway through the screening. While some concurrent reports question the veracity of Capra's accusations, what is definitely on the record is Senate Majority Leader Alvin Barkley's reaction to the film. After the screening, he called the film, quote, silly and stupid, a, quote, grotesque distortion, and a film that, quote, made the Senate look like a bunch of crooks, and showed the Senate as the biggest aggregation of nincompoops on record. So, obviously not striking a chord with uh, the people that it depicts. The film's depiction of a corrupt Senate was slammed as being anti-American and pro-communist by the DC press, who were actually painted pretty positively in the film. Uh, they're the ones who tip off Smith that he is only being used by pain, and he's only been appointed to vote the way he's told to vote. They report accurately and fairly on his actions uh, during his filibuster. But despite that, that didn't stop the actual DC press from criticizing the film. Uh, some members of the government, including Joseph Kennedy, um, who was at that time an ambassador, pushed to have Columbia withdraw the film from re release in Europe, lest it damage American prestige abroad. Some European countries spared Columbia having to make that decision, uh, as the film was banned by the governments of Germany, Italy, the USSR, and Spain. While those bannings may not have been great for Colombia's bottom line, if you ask me, if you do something that makes Hitler, Mussolini, Stalin, and Franco mad, you've probably done something that you should be proud of. Mm -hmm. Despite the film's chilly initial reception, it went on to become a critical and commercial hit. It was the second highest grossing film of the year, making $9.6 million, which adjusts to about $400 million of today's dollars when you factor in inflation, and would go on to receive 11 nominations at the Academy Awards. Frank Capra himself received two nominations, uh, one for producing it for Best Picture and one for Best Director. Jimmy Stewart received a nomination for Best Actor in a Lead Role. Claude Rains and Harry Carey, who played the President of the Senate, both received nominations for Best Supporting Actor. The film received nominations for Best Screenplay and Best Music, among others. However, it only ended the night with one victory, winning for Best Original Story. 
Now, one win on 11 nominations may seem like a disappointing awards haul. Uh, the important thing to remember here is that Mr. Smith Goes to Washington was part of the legendary Hollywood class of 1939. Which, oh, right. yeah, which is, you know, in my opinion and the opinion of many others, the single greatest year in American film history. Um, mm -hmm. Some of the films that it was up against at the Oscars that year include legendary titles like Gone with the Wind, The Wizard of Oz, Wuthering Heights, Goodbye Mr. Chips, Stagecoach, Love Affair, Only Angels Have Wings, Of Mice and Men. Uh, and that's just the Oscar nominated films. That's not even getting into films that were commercial successes. I mean, you can look at this year and the list just keeps on going and going and going. I mean, you've got Ninochka, you've got The Private Lives of Elizabeth and Essex. There were a couple more John Ford films that came out that year. Mickey Rooney starred in, I think, five Andy Hardy films that year. It's, it's just an enormous, momentous, monumental year in film history. Up against a group of films like that, and considering that Gone with the Wind in particular was an unstoppable juggernaut, uh, it won eight Oscars that year and is still, if you adjust for inflation, the highest grossing film in uh, U.S. box office history. Yeah, there's. Uh, it made, I think, it, it would be the equivalent of like $1.8 billion in today's dollars. It's just something absolutely ridiculous. You know, you hear about how well Avengers does or The Force Awakens did, and in reality, when you look at total tickets sold, they don't even hold a candle to Gone with the Wind, and that's even mm -hmm. factoring in the number of screens and the number of theaters that exist today compared to 1939. Yeah, I think that that gets factored in when they when uh, yeah. they do box office adjustment for inflation. They look at oh, okay, uh, yeah. they look at like uh, how much a dollar is worth. They look at how population has grown. They look at number of screens. But even taking all that into consideration, Gone with the Wind is still number one, and it's not even close. Yeah. The ensuing 80 years, as, as you mentioned, have been very kind to Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Uh, it was selected for the National Film Registry by the Library of Congress, and the American Film Institute list of 100 Greatest American Films of All Time that you mentioned, uh, it placed at number 29 when the list was first announced in 1998, and it had moved up to number 26 when the AFI revised its list in 2007. In addition, the AFI selected Jefferson Smith as the 11th greatest hero in American film history, and the film itself is the fifth most inspiring American film of all time. So a worthy Final Jeopardy clue, a film worthy of getting that, you know, excited, you know, hooray classic movies reaction from Alex, and a film that is absolutely worth watching. I watched it uh, streaming for free on Crackle. Uh, it does have ads on that version, so it adds a little bit of length to it. But if you can watch a film this great, you know, for free whenever you want to, uh, that, that's a hard bargain to turn down. Yeah, I should watch it again. I'm excited to watch it again. Yeah, it, it, it's great. I mean, it's it's just peak golden age of Hollywood. Like, it, they yeah. they don't make them much better than this. And it's it's Frank Capra and Jimmy Stewart. I mean, those you, you associate one with the other for a reason. I guess I guess depending on who you ask, maybe they associate Jimmy Stewart more with um, with John Ford or more with Alfred Hitchcock, Hitchcock. But when I think of Jimmy Stewart, I think of I think of uh, yeah, I think it's of a wonderful life. And I think of yeah. Mr. Smith goes to Washington. I mean, just just great, great stuff. Yeah. Which I guess brings us to the quiz section. All right. All right, let's see how I did. Uh, so uh, the category name is Mr. Smith Goes to the Podcast, uh, with Smith in quotes, uh, which is Alex would say, I think we all know what that means. Uh, so the first question, you can use your invisible hand to turn the pages of Theory of Moral Sentiments, a philosophical treatise by this Scotsman. So uh, invisible hand, uh, that's... Um... That's obviously Adam Smith. 
That is correct. Um, Theory of Moral Sentiments was Smith's first published work and lays out many of the ideas that Smith expanded upon in the better known The Wealth of Nations. While folks generally associate the invisible hand with the wealth of nations, Smith actually first used the term in Theory of Moral Sentiments 17 years earlier. So uh, this next question, uh, I got the idea kind of inspired by uh, the Hollywood class of 1939. This, quote, Wizard of Oz was known for snagging ground balls and turning double plays in St. Louis, not for hiding behind a curtain in the Emerald City. Oh, no. I'm trying to even come up with a viable guess, but this is a sports question, right? It is a like, sports question. Yeah, this is a sports question. I, I, right, didn't, no, I didn't I, know I, if sports was off-limits or out of your wheelhouse. No, no, no. no. Sports, sports is definitively not off-limits. <laughs> I just need to get better at it. Um, no, I'm, I'm not going to be able to come up with a viable guess for this one. What is it? Uh, the answer is Ozzy Smith. Uh, his, nickname, oh, okay. his nickname was the Wizard of Oz. Yeah. He spent the majority of his career with the St. Louis Cardinals and was known more for his defense than his offense, winning 13 consecutive gold gloves and earning a reputation as one of the best defensive shortstops of all time. It was his glove, not his bat, that led to him being elected a first ballot Hall of Famer in his first year of eligibility. Yeah, I have a get better at sports is on my kind of long-term trivia goals list. Yes, I've got mine, a get better at science. Yeah. <laughs> we, we've all got that one. Yep. All right, uh, question number three. The titular character in this Pulitzer Prize-winning Sinclair Lewis novel is a doctor who fights the bubonic plague on a fictional Caribbean island. Um, I don't think I'm going to be able to pull it. Sinclair Lewis is... He's the one with he he is the author of the jungle, right? I got I have this uh that, mental block around that is actually, Sinclair and Sinclair Lewis. Yes, have that, I have I pulled the wrong You did, you did. The jungle yeah, was up all right. to Sinclair. No, all right, hold on. Alright, so I don't know. You know, I barely knew anything about Sinclair Lewis until I started studying for the Tournament of Champions, and it turns out he's one of the like most consistently asked about authors in, in Jeopardy history, according to J Archive. So I, mm-hmm. it took me a good long time to realize that there were actually two famous Sinclairs who were authors and not just one. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm right there with you. Yeah. Sinclair Lewis is the... All right, since we untangled them and I'm not thinking about the jungle guy anymore, he's the Babbitt guy, right? Yes. I'm going to say Babbitt. I'm uh, going to say Babbitt. The answer is um, Aerosmith. Oh, okay. Smith Smith in each of the responses. Oh, Smith. Oh, right. Of course. Of course, there's Smith in each of the responses. Darn it, Emily. You forgot the category. Okay. That's all right. (laughs) It happens to everybody. Yeah. Sinclair Lewis won the 1926 Pulitzer Prize for Fiction for this novel. It's about a doctor who wrestles with a medical and moral quandary that pits his scientific principles against his human morality. Lewis actually ended up turning down the prize. He claimed that he did it because he didn't want to feel motivated to write for the critics, but people who know him say that he would turn it down because he was still upset that he didn't hadn't won it earlier in his career. He thought that his 1921 novel Main Street should have won uh, instead of Edith Wharton's The Age of Innocence. Hmm. All right, question number four. Uh, this is a music question. This Because the Night singer joked that she was willing to change her last name to that of her husband's, but her marriage to guitarist Fred Smith made the point moot. So uh, it's, it's probably easier if you can see it, but the be- Because the Night is in quotes, uh, the name of a song. Yeah. I've got the song in my head, but I'm not sure I know a name. All right. So it sounds like she already had the last name Smith. 
I'm not sure I know her first name. I feel it. I think I can hear the song in my head. All right, so I'm going to guess a random name and say, I'm going to say Donna. Um, the correct answer is Patty. Patty Smith. Oh, oh, Patty Smith. Oh, of course. Darn it. Okay. Well, at least I, you know, like, with Audie Smith, I'm like, oh, okay, I, that's a name I ought to know. Um, Patty Smith, I, I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, that's a name I should have, should have pulled. Her uh, 1975 debut album, Horses, was a major influence on the burgeoning New York City punk scene, but she's achieved her greatest commercial success with 1978's Because the Night, which was co-written with Bruce Springsteen. Patty Smith married uh, Fred Sonic Smith, the guitarist for the 1960s proto-punk group MC5 in 1980, and she was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2007. Uh, but yeah, I mean that yeah. that's a, one of those like tip of the tongue. Like as soon as you hear it, you you know that you know it, and you just can't pull it in time. Yeah, yeah. Not that we have strict time limits around here, but great song so, though. Yeah, great song. Question number five: Three of her novels, *Strangers on a Train*, *The Talented Mr. Ripley*, and *The Price of Salt*, have been adapted into Academy Award-nominated films. Ooh. All right. Somebody Smith. I'm sorry if I made it too hard. <laughs> no, you don't have to apologize. And uh, a hard quiz is fine. Um, I do, I, I'm not going to be able to pull this one. Who is it? Uh, the answer is Patricia Highsmith. Oh, yep. That rings a bell. Strangers on a Train was adapted by Alfred Hitchcock in 1952. Uh, the Talented Mr. Ripley received five Oscar nominations in 1999. And The Price of Salt was the basis for Carol starring Kate Blanchett and Rooney Mara, uh, which garnered six Oscar nominations in 2014. But nice. those three films are 0 for 12 at the Oscars. So maybe hmm. the next time Patricia Highsmith gets adapted, film will actually win. Yeah. Hmm. wonder what else she has out there. I don't think I've read any of her stuff. Uh, I have not. I have hmm. seen those films, but I haven't read the source material. And I honestly didn't realize that the same person was responsible for all of those. I mean, it would... You read Strangers on a Train in the... Ta- or you watch Strangers on a Train in the Talented Mr. Ripley, and then you watch Carol, and they are just worlds away from one another. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, I have 10 points, and I will wager all of them. All right. Um, so this is going to be another literature question. In this Henry Wadsworth Longfellow poem, children love to see, quote, the flaming forge and hear the bellows roar. Ooh. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Fellow. And it has Smith in the title. Yes. Smith is a word in the title. All right. or, or part of a word in the title. Ooh, right. Okay. He's Hiawatha, but that's, you know, obviously no. Yeah, I, the blacksmith. You are very close. Uh, it is the village blacksmith. Ah, uh, all right. Well, I, uh, I did okay with context, but yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't heard of that one. All right, so I finish with zero, which is, I think, not unprecedented. I think <laughs> okay, it's... As, as long as it uh, wasn't me, me writing back questions. No, no, no. You, you're, uh, these are, they, they are good questions. They're, they're pretty deep cuts. And, yeah, uh, I, I think I may have lost context for what's deep and what's not because my, my <laughs> brain is still broken. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, I, 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 I uh, feel like that happens as you, as you go down the Jeopardy rabbit hole. Yeah, real good quiz and fun theme. So thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. And thank you so much for having me. Oh, thank you. I we we really appreciate you uh, you coming on. I hope I didn't wreck the place too badly and leave too much for <laughs> to clean up. Clean up. <laughs>
you were you were fabulous as always. Well, thank you, and your podcast is fabulous as always. Oh well, thank you. Um, all right. Well, while we're having this uh, little festival of appreciation, uh, let me share my uh, appreciation for our listeners. Thank you for spending your time with us. We we really uh, love sharing Jeopardy with you all. Make sure to uh, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review or a rating if you would. If you want to throw us a few dollars a month on Patreon, that'll help us with our you know our hosting expenses and whatnot. Maybe let us do some cool new stuff. Tell your friends about us. Find us on Facebook. We're Potent Potables. On Twitter, we're Potent Potables 1. Our website is potentpod.com, and you can email us at potentpotablescast at gmail.com. And we'll be back with you next week. Kyle will be back uh, with another week of Jeopardy. And um, Stephen, do you know our do you know our catchphrase? Do you want to sign us off? May your minds be quick and your buzzes be quicker.